So we are uh, Unstoppable God Part 2. Um, the reason why this is Part 2 uh, is because uh, the last verse of our reading, if you're ahead of me, um, whoops, my notes are going, says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. That's the final verse uh, of our reading today. Uh, so it's still, it's still an unstoppable God, just as he was unstoppable last week, okay, when we read the earlier verses. So we're continuing in that vein of looking at an unstoppable God. We looked last week at how God can do things above and beyond man's comprehension, man's means. We looked at that. We looked at how nothing that man does can uh, stop the progress of God in his ultimate plan to bring the gospel to every person around the world. This week, we continue in learning about what the, the God is most protective of. We learn how the glory of God is something that God will not share with anyone, especially the tyrants of this world. What I want us to see this week is, is that grace, and we call that, what, what, in case you're not really sure what grace is, grace is this time when God in his mercy allows things to happen that are not very nice. Allows things to happen because we're sinful, broken people. And in this time, he allows that to happen in, in order, in the hope, that people come to him and recognize that their sinful state needs restoration. They need to be restored to God. We learn how the glory of God is, is just something that will not be shared. I want us to see that grace is not an excuse to do anything we like, as Paul says, just because we are saved. That God's grace, whilst is especially wide, cannot be abused in as far as grabbing glory from the very God that gave it. We will learn that God will not accept any other God contesting for his glory and that this means God will go to whatever lengths that is right to him to protect it. Again, dipping into this subject of sovereignty, whatever God does and has to do to protect his glory, he will do on us is to accept what actions he does to do that. And I hope in understanding this that we, uh, we can learn that being a Christian means coming humbly to God, submitting to his authority in whatever he does to bring glory to himself. This is very difficult when, when life gets tough for people, and maybe not persecution of your faith, but just in your life generally, these subjects can be very difficult when, when we don't agree with what God allows or doesn't allow, what God does or doesn't do. It's very difficult. But I want us to understand that if we come to God, and rather than searching for the solution that I want, that we need to push in faith and believe that God has the best for us. Whatever happens here, as people who believe in Jesus Christ, we are assured salvation and eternity with him. Whatever happens here, whatever happens here. So let's have a look at our verses, Acts 12, 18 to 24. Uh, and it says this, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. 
Uh, last week, Peter was in prison. He was set free by the angel of the Lord. Uh, and now they've woken up and they've seen that he's gone. There was no small commotion. It means it was chaos. They were in chaos. Uh, it's kind of using a, a, an opposite <laughs> to describe what is actually happening. Next verse. After Herod had a thorough search made uh, for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards. Cross-examined, really detailed. He interrogated them, in a sense, and ordered they be executed. Then Herod went from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling uh, with the people of Tyre and, and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him after securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king. They asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, small g God, not a real God, not of a man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. Hence why we have an unstoppable God. Okay, let's look at our first two verses, 18 and 19. In the morning, no small commotion uh, among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter after Herod had, uh, had a thorough search made for him and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. So, we find ourselves in the aftermath of Peter's escape and the consequence of Herod's determination for power and godlike rule. This, this really comes to a head in these final verses, just how much he is determined to rule. And not only rule a country, he's, he's so determined that he wants to be godlike. He wants, and we'll come on to that, but he is so determined to be adored like a god, which is why we see that later on. But we're going to see this consequence of what happens when people try and take from the glory of God. Herod was full of rage because Peter had been able to escape. And we saw last week that Herod uh, had put an unusual amount of guards around Peter and attached to Peter. They were literally attached to him, chained him, uh, and they were sleeping with him next to him. And the chains fell off, he got up and walked out. Angel of the Lord. What makes Peter, the escape of Peter by an angel even more miraculous was the fact that these guards would have been on their absolute highest of alert states. This is in part because Herod had specifically ordered the capture of Peter, absolutely. But secondly, the custom of the time was that if a prisoner escaped, the guards would have been given the penalty of the prisoner. Now, if you're a guard there, and you know this to be true, you're going to be on your highest alert, aren't you? If this guy escapes, you're going to get what he's going to get. Not just one of them, not just the guys chained to him, all of them. They're all responsible for guarding this one man. So we know to a point, just from our own human nature, that if the, that threat of life is over you, of death rather, is over you, based on how you perform in your job, you're going to do pretty well, aren't you? You're going to try and do the best you can. Now, thankfully, we don't have that in our workplaces. Uh, we don't have the threat of death when we don't do well. 
We have reviews in our workplaces, which just don't uh, just get to me uh, from my job. I don't really understand uh, a lot of why they do it, but it's done and we just need to live with it. But death is not hanging over us when we don't perform well at our jobs. But here, if they didn't do what was right, if they didn't carry out the, what was given to them, which is the, to protect or sorry, guard Peter from escaping, they're going to get death. That's what was going to happen to Peter. This is how we know also that Peter was due to be executed. Because after Herod had cross-examined the guards, he executed them instead of Peter. So it wasn't just a public trial. There was a public trial with a definite verdict of guilty. Uh, he was not, it wasn't going to be a fair trial. He was going to be put to death. But these actions show us uh, how absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think I've got that saying right. Uh, this is what he's going for. He's going for God's rule, God's power, God's glory. So whilst Herod was already on a death spiral as he tried to take on God and stop him, these actions to execute the guards are the futile actions of a, a tyrant with nowhere to go, of a ruler with nowhere to go. With tyrants like these, I think you'll find, and even today, we can see this in our world today, you'll find that rather than admitting defeat, these things only serve to push in and get them to push on further even if their path is futile. Uh, it almost encourages them to be more tyrannical. We only have to look at Pharaoh and hardening of his heart to understand how a tyrant pushes into and against the purposes of God. The first five plagues were all about Pharaoh pushing in again and again when, he, uh, when the last failed. It's, all these verses are in, uh, these times are in Exodus uh, 7, 22, 8, 15, 8, 19, 8.32 and 9.7, all these first five were Pharaoh himself, himself hardening his own heart. Need to be clear about that. He was, he was choosing to go against God, and that's what he was doing. But we see this here, same, uh, there's nothing new under the sun uh, with tyrants in the Bible. This is what they do. When they feel threatened and their power is threatened, they just push in even more for power and more power. What would have particularly got to Herod was not really the escape of Peter, I don't think. It annoyed him because, well, he'd escaped. But more so, I think, that Peter's God had frustrated Herod. Herod is so self-obsessed and power-obsessed, that I've no doubt he was actually pitting himself against God. And in fact, in that same pattern that we see in Pharaoh's played out here with Herod. First, Herod fixes his face against God by making it a personal mission to end the Christian movement by executing James and trying the same with Peter. And then there's almost that same self-hardening against God. And then we see this principally a similar pattern where God hands Herod over to the consequences of his own power grab and own glory. So when we're talking about maybe what, what, when does God stop? When, when does God do something when, when grace is abused? When we see in the verses of Pharaoh, there is much grace, 
much grace. God has done nothing in terms to Pharaoh at this point. He's done nothing to intercede, maybe, uh, to, for the purposes of his plan. This is part of his plan, but there's grace in these, these first five um, uh, plagues that we see here. Same here. There's, there's still grace. Let's look at our next verses. Um, verse 20. It's a long one. Uh, it said, He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for their food supply. Uh, two port cities north of Caesarea here uh, in a region called Phoenicia, uh, I think it's pronounced. Uh, mutual interdependence existed between the two cities and Galilee, although Tyre and Sidon were more dependent on Galilee. So when they say uh, they wanted, they were dependent on the king's country, they were dependent on the supply uh, from the king's country of their food. And there was this commerce going on between Tyre and, and Sidon. And Herod's country in, the, in, in those days, Herod's country sent uh, food supplies to them in exchange for other goods uh, needed, but it seemed probably a somewhat fragile arrangement. And we know uh, that Herod is very easily angered. So maybe what they do, I don't know. I haven't looked more into what they've done to anger him or to annoy him, but I imagine it wasn't much. Uh, Herod is, is a power grabber. Uh, he wants to rule, so anything probably would have set him off. He was angry uh, with these places which put their, their food supply at risk. And so what it says is, is that the people attempted to please Herod. They, they just wanted to placate him. It's probably a, a better word to say. Uh, maybe stroke his ego a little bit, maybe uh, feed his hunger to be worshipped and adored, just because if they didn't get this supply, there'd be no food supply for these cities, for these places. And Herod particularly liked having his power acknowledged. He, he liked to be exalted for how powerful he was. And this goes on in our next verse, in verse 21. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. This is like the pinnacle. This is the moment where he's uh, so full of himself that he thinks, oh yeah, I've made it. I'm sitting on the throne. Not only am I the ruler here, I'm going to be the ruler of all people. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get their adoration, their glory, uh, whatever God they have, I'm going to replace him. It's all that sort of... It's that determination. This, this is what these verses really mean. And he loved being adored. He wanted them to know that he was someone important. Whatever that was. <laughs> In many ways to the people of Tyre and Sidon, he was a god. He held power over whether these places would get food or not. Uh, in many earthly ways, he, he kind of held life and death. Uh, over uh, in his hands. Uh, so again, you know, there's a reflection here of him wanting to gain this power, but for the sake of abusing it, that he, he really wanted them to know that he could hold their, their life in his hands and he could decide if they died that day uh, or, or tomorrow. If he felt like he, he didn't like them, he would have just stopped it. This, this is just how tyrannical this guy is. 
Luke 22, uh, verse 25 says, Jesus said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise, exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Jesus had these types of people down to a T. This is what they do. They benefited from the suffering and subservience of the people they ruled over. It was all about them. But of course, and thankfully for God, this is nothing new. But he doesn't make the consequences any less impactful. You see, what's happening now is that God is handing Herod over to the choices he has made to set himself up against God. He's not, he's not forcing Herod to do this, but it's consequence. If Herod decides and continues to keep wanting to take the glory from God, he will suffer the consequences of trying to take that glory. And God is selfish about his glory. He is jealous about his glory. Don't, don't ever be uh, uh, misinformed about just how much God is jealous about his glory. Just like Pharaoh, once he had, after the five times, hardened his heart towards God, God gives him over to his hardened heart to really know what it means to go up against an unstoppable and powerful God. The last four plagues uh, in Exodus, hope you can see that. Um, in particular, the second one, which is really interesting, uh, the, the second one on that list, so that's the, that will be the seventh plague. That's, that's still Pharaoh hardening his own heart, as in he's set, still setting himself against God. I, I like the order that this has been written in, the way God's done this as well. This sense that God starts to say, well, if you, if you want to go against me, I'll hand you over to that desire to do that. But the next one, it's almost like a little bit of grace, right? It's almost like he might have a chance to come back to God. He might have a chance to step back and say, okay, this God is powerful. I'm not going to get in his way. Because on the, on the seventh one, Pharaoh hardens his own heart again. And that's the final chance. That's it. And then we see in the rest of, uh, of the plagues, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. See, we can see some similarity in the way God deals with tyrannical leaders, people who are, who are vying for his glory, for his majesty. But we need to be clear when we see this. We, we can't say that God is not a God of grace. How many chances has this amazing God, our God, given these people who are purposefully going up against him? God lets this play out so we can see just how dangerous it is for anyone to set themselves up as a God, small g. All this pride and arrogance will not be tolerated if the intention was to try to be equal to or greater than the God of the Bible. Verse 22 in our reading says this, they shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of a man. Even the people saw just how far Herod was going. It was almost like Herod at this point was unleashed. In Pharaoh terms, this would have been the 10th plague. This is it. It's the final straw. 
a Jewish historian uh, called Josephus, he, he comments on what that might have looked like when he sat on the throne and, 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 and vied for God's glory. Uh, it says here, he says, he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a con- contextual contexture uh, truly wonderful and came into the theater early in the morning at which time the silver of his garment being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it shone out after a surprising uh, manner and was so resplendent as to spread a horror over those that looked intently upon him and presently excuse me um, his flatterers cried out one from one place and another from another uh, though not for his God, for his good, that he was a God. So just trying to give you a picture of just how uh, amazing this guy thought he was, just how godlike that even the timing of his arrival on the throne would give him the best look and image to these people, that he would look godlike, and not only look godlike, he wanted to be godlike. Jesus gave us a very clear warning about what would happen to people who attempted to exalt themselves uh, above God. Luke 14, verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Do you see uh, the consistency in these, this verse? Either way, it's to be humble. You will be humbled, or we have to be humble. Whether you're a Christian or not, God will humble. Either we can choose to humble ourselves, come to God and submit ourselves to him, or he will make us humble. On the day that Jesus returns, I'm going to bet that when he returns, every person who is not, and this is so terribly sad, people who are not believing in Jesus will be made humble. They will be made humble because of his glory, because Oh no, it's true. Jesus is the Lord. For those hopefully as Christians that believe that Jesus came, died for sin and rose again, uh, we will humble ourselves because we know the glory, we've seen the glory of God appear. Now there's a very fine line here as we're really careful that we don't wander into God's doing uh, is going to kill people just because certain people are doing things or even saying things that are not honoring him. We need to be really careful because in the Bible, God allows quite a lot before he does anything. He allows quite a lot. There's a lot of grace going on before he it does anything of people who, who claim things that are not about him. So what I don't mean is people who claim to, to be God, just, just claim to be God, who make claims. Uh, not necessarily living and, and want to claim, take his sovereignty, but just say silly things, as I've, I've, I've heard and read of people claiming to be God, even those who claim to be Jesus, which apparently there is a guy I've seen in the news who's claiming to be Jesus. Uh, I'm going to say there's still grace for them. There's still grace for them to just come back to God, see their error so that they can come to Jesus. What I'm talking about is people who so believe in their own deluded visions of power that they place themselves in a position of earthly power to lord it over the people to the extent that they require almost a form of worship. 
That's the level we're talking about. And there, there are people who, are, who, who, are, who have been and tried to be like that. And I don't doubt that in the future there will be more. That they're not many, but there are few. Don't we have tyrants in some countries around the world that uh, lock themselves into power to such an extent that the power alone is not enough? We're seeing this more and more in our news uh, cycles. We're seeing more and more countries, more countries moving away from a kind of democracy into dictatorship. And then a dictatorship isn't quite enough. And then, and then it's more power, and then it's taking more, and it's no longer voting and uh, uh, democracy. It's now about how much power they can grab and keep. The adoration of the power they have is what they ultimately go for. When people who take power start to move into the stage of adoration, that is when you are messing with God. When it's not just about uh, putting tyrannical rules in, when it's about adore me as if you're adoring God, God will not stand for that. Exodus 34, verse 14, do not worship any other God, small g God, just like, uh, just, just, just like him, just like Herod. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Don't, don't get confused with the New Testament being a new book in terms of it not relating to the Old Testament. Old and New Testament are one book. It all speaks about Jesus. This is still true today. This is still true today. The only way we are not destroyed, we're not sent to hell as it were, is because of Jesus. It's because right now we live in a time of grace. But don't get it wrong or underestimate that this is still true today. God is still this God. There's not an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. There is God. God is all these things. This particular verse in the context was talking about the worship of other gods, but what it describes is a characteristic of God. God in his grace allows for so much of our sinful, selfish desires even to the point of power. But God will not share his glory and exaltation he deserves with anyone. Joshua 24, verse 19. Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. That's big. And it's true. That is still true. The only reason why that he does forgive is because of Jesus. The only reason, the only reason he forgives is because of Jesus. So Herod has enter, entered into this place of no return. And just as Jesus said, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You will know this God. Verse 23 of our reading. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. This, this, the last part, I'll go into the rest of it, but the last part is fascinating, because 
there's this, there's this concept of the worms eating him from the inside out. You know we sing a song uh, sometimes called From the Inside Out? Uh, well, glory, worship to God can happen that way. Uh, but sin and, and selfish power and ambition can also eat us from the inside out. So when we sing and, and ask God from the inside out, please, Lord, that's why we need it. Because otherwise, what will eat us from the inside out is sin and self-ambition and self selfishness. It, it will all eat us alive. We need God right at the center from the inside out. The manner of Herod's death befits his spiritual state. He was corrupted from the inside out. Nebuchadnezzar suffered a, a similar fate, uh, although not in these verses that he was killed, but a, a similar fate. It was it's in Daniel 4, uh, verses 30 to 32. He said, he said, is not this the great Babylon I've built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, he said, Nebuchadnezzar. Even as the words were on his lips, because God knows what he's going to say, literally gave him a chance to not say it, by the way. He knows it's in his heart, but as the words left his lips, which he chose to say, which he knew was not for God, but for himself. So God waits, grace. Are you going to, I know you're thinking it, but are you going to say it? If you say it, something's going to happen. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you and to acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. This, this is the sovereignty that we've got to accept as Christians. God does whatever he wishes to glorify himself, to make himself known and to be glory. We must learn that God is doing what he needs to do. Just because we are Christians, what they should not do is give us license to feel some form of justice on God's behalf like we're on his team. We are on his team, but you know what? It, it's so much more than that. It's so much more. We're not here to go, yeah, God, you do that. Because you know what it's doing? is speaking into our desire to want to see that person killed by God or, or vengeance by God or whatever you want to call it. Just because we're Christians, it doesn't give us license uh, to almost place ourselves uh, next to God. Being a Christian does not mean we can stand in judgment because of some misunderstood notion that we now fight for what God fights for. We're selfish people who fight for our own agendas. Just look at the political world and the world around us. People fight for their own agendas. We do it. We, do it. we, we still do it today, in and out of time, in and out of places. We, we sometimes go to that place where it, it leaves what God wants to do and we suddenly take up a, uh, a crusade. It's all about, yeah, and, and then later on, oh, yeah, because it's what God wants. Is it? Or is it what you want? Is it what I want? 
that our political or personal agendas somehow align perfectly with the righteousness of God. And let me be clear, if you believe that Jesus is God, that he died on the cross and was resurrected, you are saved. But don't confuse that with an alignment of righteousness. Don't confuse that with somehow, because I'm saved, I'm equally righteous in my decision-making, in my opinions with the Lord Almighty. The Bible says you are covered in righteousness. You are not righteous. No man is righteous, says the word. Not one. What it should do for believers and non-believers alike is to humble us into reverence of a God who will not share his throne with anyone. Jesus said in our earlier verse that those that humble themselves will be exalted, that there's no escape from being humbled. Either we can humble ourselves or we will be humbled. Anyone has the capacity to end up going down this road of not only power grabbing, but of grabbing that which is for God alone, exaltation and praise. The Bible is littered with examples of people who tried to take God's exaltation, who tried to take his glory for themselves. Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, it is mine to avenge, I will repay in due time. Their foot will slip, their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. This is what is happening to Herod takes them right to the very end and to the people who are, who are asking for peace because they want food. There's, God is still allowing some grace, some movement, so that maybe Herod would turn from his ways. But let it be clear that when people go for his glory, he will take that vengeance. Herod believed he had the upper hand against God's people, but God showed who was really in charge. Herod is judged, the church is blessed. Herod fought against God, but the church submitted to God and got in line with his plan, and that's where it all comes down to. We need to learn how to submit and humble ourselves to God for his plan and his will that is unstoppable despite our feelings and thoughts about it. Our last verse, verse 24, says, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. So let me sum up here. We'll leave it on there. <laughs> she might be able to go back. I can well understand, I think, when I look at this, what we see happening around us can shake the faith of many people. When we see things around the world, it can really shake us possibly asking questions about whether God is really doing anything today. We might ask why God does not seemingly intervene in perceived wrongs that we see today. But I think when we do that, we measure God's effectiveness by our own standard of what we think God is changing or not changing, doing or not doing. What happens is we can quickly end up in a mindset that the perceived temporary worldly victories over the gospel are a sign that God and the gospel is losing. When we look at Herod, let me be clear, God is not losing. 
But if we only see God as effective or ineffective based on our perception of effectiveness, then we're not perceiving the God of the Bible, nor the effectiveness of his plan and will. In most part, non-believers, I think, hold to a general principle of measuring the reality of God's existence only by what they perceive to be right and wrong in the world. Why does this happen? Why does that happen? If there is a God, why does this happen? But guess what? We're pretty bad at holding right and wrong in perfect balance. We're pretty bad at strict definitions of right and wrong. God knew that, and so he sent his son to die, so we may be invited into his kingdom. We're terrible at it. So applying our sense of injustice or wrong or what we think God should do about something to the perfect will and sovereignty of God is at best misguided, at worst trying to command the will of God himself. The unstoppable God is unstoppable because his plan to spread the salvation through Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth is what he is doing. In the course of that plan, God will do things and has done things that may shock our worldly notions of right and wrong and justice. But God is God, not because he meets yours or my definition of a God. He's God because he's the eternal, uncreated God of the universe. Whatever God does to accomplish his plan requires us to humble ourselves in the face of those actions and remind us of the reverence and glory that he deserves. There is no getting around the fundamental pillar of faith that we are, submit as, we are to submit ourselves to a holy, perfect God by whom Jesus was sent so that we may be saved into the kingdom as sons and daughters of the Most High God and that we no longer conform to this world but by the renewing of our mind, be transformed so we're able to test and approve what God's will is. Guess what his will is? Good, pleasing, and perfect. Your will, my will, is not. To apply that to a God who is perfect is outrageous. It doesn't even make sense. It's one of those sermons when I was writing, it kind of slaps you in the face. It says, who am I? Who am I to be telling God what to do? Who am I to be placing my opinion on this great and awesome God who, by the way, if in case you didn't know, has a plan to bring Jesus back to finish everything? That will happen. Who am I to question the plan and will of God? And yet, what we miss, when we do that, when we do question it, is we miss the, being in his presence, being, spending time with him and learning how to submit to his will. Because that's not a thing like we're learning to do something in the world. It's learning how to find peace in the will of God that we sometimes might not agree with. How do we do that? Let's get on our knees and just pray. Lord, show me your insight into this, into that. Show me, your show me your peace that you promised. He promises peace, and we pray to him. 
But our intention must be not to alter or change the will of God, but to glorify the will of God. That he may be glorified and we may serve him whatever he takes us to serve in. That is an honor. Because at the end of this road in this life, we're going to meet him. We're going to give an account to him and we're going to live with him forever. When you look at that, what does this life really mean? Unless it has to be about telling people about Jesus. We want people to be saved. Let's pray. Let's have some worship. We'll take communion and then worship at the end. Let's pray together. Lord, your majesty is something that is so difficult to comprehend as we we go about our business in this world, as we go about our day-to-day lives, that, Lord, we see the things around us and we... Oh, Lord, we, we cannot... We cannot make sense of why people do what they do. But we do know this, Lord, because if if we're believing in Jesus, we know that the reason why things happen in this world is because we're broken. It's because we're messed up. It's because there's nothing good in us. And yet, whilst there is nothing good, you sent your son to die on a cross for the gift of salvation for those that never didn't ever deserve it. That's what doesn't make sense. Lord, I just want to pray now that we lift our eyes to you as we're seeing the world doing what you said it would do. The world is doing what Jesus said would happen. But Lord, in that time, we pray that for us, certainly, we want to be tools of the kingdom. We want to be used to share the gospel to as many people as possible so that before the time comes, whether that be uh, death or whether that be the return of Jesus, that they may know a holy God exists, that he sent his son to die on a cross who bled for the sins of all people for all time. Father, we just want to praise you now. Thank you that you're awesome in power. Thank you that you blot out with the blood of Jesus our sin. We are forgiven. We are forgiven if we repent, come to a revelation of our brokenness. Thank you for that, Lord, that there is still time. We praise you, Lord, and we thank you, Lord. And we ask all these things in your precious name. Amen. Amen.